Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is where we have an ongoing discussion on biblical questions, where we invite you in the audience to participate and discuss along with us. I also want to emphasize that as we discuss your questions, that we default to what the Bible has to say on the matter. However you are watching the show today, please text us your questions using the Q&A window in the app or using the comment box if you're joining us from Stephen's Facebook page. Our panelists are Stephen from Get from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Drew. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. And also from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. And Jeff is from Exton, PA. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. And Noah is our webcast engineer helping out with uh, your questions and comments. And I'm Drew DeGrotto from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody, to the show today. So uh, we have a few things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, Stephen, what's the first question that we have up on the queue? So for today, uh, we've got a question from Michael. It said, in your video discussions, have you guys discussed the number of the beast in Revelation thirteen eighteen? Does it refer to Satan, as many say? And so that's a submitted question from Michael. And the answer to the first part of that question is no, we have not addressed that specific question on the show yet. So we might take a few minutes to do that. Brothers, what are your thoughts on that? On the, on the number of the beast in Revelation thirteen eighteen. Yes, sir. Um, I think it's the number of a man. That is what the text says. Let's read that. <laughs> Revelation 13. Next um, question. Yeah. Next question, yeah. Just, you know. Uh, Revelation 13 and verse 18. Uh, and in the context here, we had the in chapter 12, the woman and the dragon, and then the dragon's two allies, uh, the two beasts in chapter 13. There's the first beast from the sea, and there's the second beast coming from the earth. And uh, so then uh, chapter 13, verse 18 of Revelation, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. And I've got a footnote that says some manuscripts say 616. So, you know, the fact that it starts out and says this calls for wisdom may mean we're not qualified to discuss this. But, <laughs> but I will say this. You know, that could be that could be in translated either it's the number of a man or it's the number of man. And that actually introduces a couple of different ideas. Is it talking about humanity as something short of deity or is it uh, a number that somehow symbolically represents some particular man? And, and maybe that's what we want to talk about just briefly. Yeah, I know let's, that I've heard different. Uh, or Go ahead, Scott. Let's back up just a little bit, though, before we get into that, because sure. the question asked is it, is this the number of Satan? Ah. So quickly distinguish in the text. If you go back to chapter 12. We're, rever- that- we're talking about Revelation 13, verse 18, just for anyone to come in. Just give That's me- right, Revelation 13. And the question was, 666, is that Satan's number, the number of Satan? Uh, so just quickly backing up to chapter 12, we've got a woman about to give birth to a child in a great red dragon is planning to devour the child. Uh, but does he succeed? No. No. Snatched Instead, away. the child uh, survives the, the onslaught of, of the dragon or the threat of the dragon, and he goes to where in verse 5? 
far away to the wilderness, right? Uh, a she was delivered to the son, a man-child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God. Okay, yes. Throne. It's the woman that goes to the wilderness. The child goes up to the, to the right hand of God, to the throne of God. Okay, so the child is obviously who? Jesus. Christ. Yeah. Notice the reference to he rules with a rod of iron, comes Psalm, from Psalm, Psalm 2. Yeah. So Jesus is the child. He was not destroyed by Satan. He, he ascends to the throne of God. And then there's war in heaven, Michael and the archangels, and they cast forth the dragon. And this is one of the places in Revelation where we don't have to guess because it tells you who is the dragon in verse 9. It's the one who was the serpent of old. It's Satan. It's the devil, the dragon. Yeah, yeah identified in all those three ways. So at the ascension of Christ, in the victory at the cross and the tomb and the ascension of Christ, Satan is defeated and cast down to the earth. Chapter 12 ends with rejoicing in heaven saying, great, but watch out earth because he's angry. He lost, he's angry. And so in verse 17, the, Satan goes away to make war against those who follow the name of Jesus. So and then in chapter 13, he raises up two beasts to use to attack the church. The first is the beast that comes out of the sea, which if anybody wants to discuss this further, I believe, and there's a good reason to see in the book of Revelation, that's the Roman Empire. And then there's the earth beast that operates within the authority of the first beast. So it's not another empire. It's something operating within the Roman yeah. Empire that gets people to worship the uh, just as a little bit of historical perspective, we've got correspondence from a governor and a Caesar uh, in just not many years after this, where Christians were being put to death for being Christians. And the way they could get out of it would be if they would curse or denounce Christ and burn incense to Caesar, worship Caesar. So that has to do with worshiping the beast. So the beast is not Satan. The beast is something that Satan is empowering. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 13. People are worshiping the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So the beast is not Satan, but it's something Satan is using. And then we come to that verse that the beast has a number. Just, just real quickly, um, this idea that there was a conflict between uh, the people of God, and did you, I'm sorry, Scott, as you were talking about uh, the beast, did you mention the Roman Empire? Yes. Okay. I, I should have heard that. I didn't. That's all right. You <laughs> I, I should have going, and then I got up to get a book. Um, this, is a, this is a book, Caesar and Christ, by Will Durant, Will and Ariel Durant, and it's one of the volumes in the history of the world. And in this volume, he's, he's talking about this period of time in, in the first century, in the second century, and he talks about, there's a statement, and I was trying to find it real quickly, but he says Caesar and Christ met in the arena. And, of course, he's talking about the gladiatorial contests where there would be a fight in the arena. And, and he describes Christ as the victor. And he's talking about the demise of Rome and the rise uh, and spread of Christianity. And I just <laughs> mentioned that because um, it, it kind of helps people understand that this idea that that the conflict that's being described in Romans 13 is not so much some conflict in uh, the year 2018. Right. It's a conflict that even historians recognize took place in the early centuries. Yeah. 
Very interesting. I also think it's worth noting that uh, as we have the number of the beast, the number of its name at right. the end of chapter 13. Chapter 14 begins with the with God's people on Mount Zion. There's the lamb, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And people uh, really worry about the mark of the beast being something literal and present, but then not as many people are worried about, you know, the mark uh, of the 144,000, the, the lamb being on, on their foreheads. So I think we were supposed to see an intentional contrast between those two things. I think both symbolic things, um, that doesn't answer the question, all of the questions about the mark of the beast, but I do think you, it, it's important not to miss that there's a mark on the wrong side and there's a mark of being on yeah. the right side in the yeah. book of Revelation. People want to take the mark of the beast as being something like an ATM card or a social security number or something. Right. They don't do that with the mark that's put on God's people. Right. They recognize that's figurative, but <laughs> Well I, I want to I want to share the, that you I want to share this with you. You brought that up. Uh my brother was working for uh IT and T. This goes back in the uh I guess it was 1979, and uh he wasn't religious. He wasn't a Christian because, and he knew, but he knew where I was at in, in the classes that I was having and all. He, he calls me up one day and he says, Drew, I know I can get an answer from you. What's this 666 mean? Oh, I said, Bob, we're on a phone right now. There's no way. I, I mean, I, I can't give you a direct answer on that. Why don't we get into a Bible study, which he did. But the point I want to get to was the reason it came to his attention is because there is supposedly a huge computer in Europe that had a nickname on it, 666. And he says, oh, this is too much. I got to call my brother, see what he tells me about it. Obviously, it was, I don't know if they were, you know, just using it. I don't know why they called it that, but it was a permanent name on the computer. Did any of you guys hear about that? That sounds like some of that internet lore that somebody starts that's not even necessarily true. Well, I'm not starting any lore. I'm telling you, I got a phone call from my brother asking. Yeah, yeah, but, oh, yeah. Well, maybe he didn't see it. You're right. Maybe someone told him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know what the good news of that was? It led to a Bible study. Oh, and, you know, that was my brother, Bob. My brother, Bob. He's now a Christian. That's right. That's so we, we shouldn't be afraid of discussing and talking about these types of things and see where what the truth from the God, from the Bible really is. So here's this quote real quick. It's uh, page 652, this quote in Caesar and Christ by Will Durant. It says, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutally, brutality with hope, and at last, defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. That's page 652. If anybody has that, that volume, like look it up. That's cool. What a great description. We yeah. also had a comment come in uh, during that discussion from Stephen, uh, different, not me, Stephen, a uh, different one. Um, it's also helpful to remember that the Jews were the primary persecutors of Christians in the first century, the time and people to whom the letter was written. Bud, you all are emphasizing that it's figurative, not actual, whatever is being talked about. Yeah, and that gets into a whole questions about the book of Revelation and the nature of that. Revelation and all of that. Yeah. Stephen, I don't know if you're, this is where you were going, Scott, but Stephen, 
I thought I heard you say 666, and then you said 617. 616. Um, Sorry, 616, right, 616. Yeah, so 666 or 616, there is a textual question about the number in the text. I don't know all the details about that, but that's what my footnote has. Is that where you were going there, Scott? Uh, Just on the question here, helpful to remember that Jews were the primary persecutors of Christians in the first century. Um, And up to the time in the book of Acts, that's certainly the case. Uh, Acts, which I believe would be written in the early 60s, you go through the book of Acts, and it's over and over, Jews were the first uh, and primary persecutors there. By the time you get to uh, the 110s AD, that's when we have, for example, the historical uh, correspondence between the governor of Bithynia and Trajan, who was Caesar, and discussing the execution of Christians who refused to renounce Christ, worship the gods, and burn incense to Caesar. Uh, and this became, and, and keep in mind too, the Jews have largely lost a lot of their power after 70 AD. Yeah. Before 70 AD, the Jews were in a bigger power position uh, culturally and some different things, but they've suffered their own devastating loss in 70 AD. And um, you, you've got Nero began a persecution against Christians in Rome. And that that's dealt with in the book of Revelation is pretty clear. Let's look at Revelation chapter 17. About uh, Tell us when Nero was the emperor, so everyone knows. Uh, he was in, uh, I don't remember the year in beginning, but he was emperor till about 64, from sometime in the 50s yeah. till about 64. Yeah, because didn't he blame the Christians for the war, uh, for the fire? For the fire. Yes, yes, and you can read about that in Suetonius and Tacitus. So, um, on this, go ahead. On this number, this 666 number, yeah. so it may or may not ha- have been a number that was that had some symbolic significance that could be interpreted according to something called gematria. Uh, I don't know whether it was or not. Um, I'm a little skeptical that it was, but but it's possible. And what it is is simply a uh, a means of writing messages using numbers. Uh, and this was done. There's a an inscription from I think it's the fourth, first century where somebody said the the number of the girl whom I love is 45. Well, what was he doing? Well, you know, as kids, we all had this little code where we would uh, let number one represent A, number two represents B, and so on, all the way through the alphabet. And then we could write a message using numbers rather than letters. Um, And in both Hebrew and Greek, it was routine to write, um, to to use letters for numbers. and, and then what you would do in Gematria is you would take the numbers and, and add them up, and you could say, all right, the sum total is this. So, for example, in my wife's name is Libby, and if you take the letters L-I-B-B-Y, uh, Y is 25, the two Bs are two each, I is 10, let's see, L, 13, 14, L is 14, nine. I must be 9. You add all that up, it comes out to 50. And so if I had wanted to write a secret message, I could have said the number of the girl whom I love is 50. And Libby, because she would have suspected it was she, could have said, well, that's me. The problem with this is that you can never know from the number. If you have the the, the word, you can know what the number is. But if you have the number, 
it's ambiguous. It could be multiple words, various words. So, for example, Libby has a sister named Joy, and if you add up the letters in Joy, J is 10, O is 15, and Y is 25, that also adds up to 50. And so if I'd said the number of the girl whom I love is 50, well, that could have been Libby or that could have been Joy, and I could have been in big trouble. So you want to be careful with those kinds of things. Uh, there are various attempts throughout history uh, that have been made to, to discern a name uh, that equals, that, that if you put it using gematria into numbers and add it up, that it adds up to 666. But it's, uh, it's ambiguous. Uh, here's, I'm going to put up on the screen here some of the guesses by Arrhenius, who was fairly early. Uh, and even in his time, he's not certain what it is. So he said it could be Tatian. If you can look on the screen there, uh, the Tau, 300, et cetera, et cetera, comes out here to 666. Latinos, the Latins, or the Romans, uh, would come up to 666. And Euthanos, I'm not sure why that one. If Tatian, uh, it's suggested that, this is from an article by a blogger named James Snap, by the way, uh, but it gives us Irenaeus's easy chart there to see on it. Tatian would be another well to spell, way to spell Titan, which Irenaeus explains as a, the name of a tyrant, possibly referring to Titus, who was one of the children of Vespasius who served as Caesar before Domitian. Uh, Latins, that one's kind of interesting. Uh, Latinos may be interested as the Latins, that is the Romans, whose empire Arrhenius recognized as the fourth kingdom envisioned by Daniel. By the way, so that tells us that at this time in history, even though there was some question about who, which fellow the 666 refers to, it is recognized that this beast, this fourth kingdom, is the Roman Empire. Stephen? Mm -hmm. uh, we just had a couple of comments come in. Uh, one from Herman, who says, I'm thinking it has to do with Constantine, with 6, 616. And so, again, there's been some other uh, things with Gematria dealing with Constantine. I've seen another one dealing with, like, Caesar, Caesar Nero or something like that. Um, yeah. and, and some of them deal with you have to convert it to Hebrew letters and then right. leave out the, the vowels. And there's different ways of working with it to try to get it to equal. Again, kind of like Jeff mentioned, if you know the number, it could refer to different things. Um, Stephen uh, Kuffel also asks, he says, good explanation of gematria. I think that's helpful for people to see what is likely being talked about. Um, this also explains both 616 and 666 variations. So, so well, go ahead, Scott, and then I'll say a word about the, the variations that some manuscripts have one and some have the other. Yeah, I, I was just going to comment on that, that even at the time of Arrhenius, he recognized there were two variants in the manuscripts. He said the older and better manuscripts had the 666. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so for the, the manuscripts that still exist today, um, the, the, the strong evidence by far is in favor of 666. Some people watching this webcast will be familiar with the fact that when you look at the King James Version, it tends to rely on a great mass of manuscripts that are generally later manuscripts. Sometimes they're referred to as the Byzantine manuscripts. Um, sometimes they are said to lie behind the so-called majority text. And then on the other hand, there are some early manuscripts. We think of Codex Sinaiticus and some of the Papyri and Codex Vaticanus. And oftentimes we'll see a difference where the, the 
the manuscripts, the later, the great number of later manuscripts say one thing, and the early manuscripts say something else. In this instance, in this reading, both the early manuscripts and the great mass of later man manuscripts that would lie behind the King James, for example, uh, have 666. Uh, there are a few manuscripts that say, uh, there's one that says uh, 665, just one, just one. <laughs> And then there is one that says 646. It's actually an ancient Italian manuscript. In other words, it's not in Greek. And then there, um, and then there are a very, very few that say 616. Um, so there's not a lot of manuscript in favor of anything, a lot, not a lot of manuscript evidence in favor of anything other than 666. Now, Ask, one question. Go ahead. Go ahead, now, one question on this. I've also heard people talk about that six is one less than seven, which is the biblical number of perfection or completion. Right. Um, though it seems that in the Greek, it's not so much six, 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 as it is 666. Right. Um, it, so w would that argument really hold a lot of water? Um, it, it, not six being repeated three times, it's 666. It, it still might have the point. Um, I would think. Jeff, you're, you're, you're our Greek guy. What would you say to that? Okay, repeat the question. Some people say that the number it is simply the number of a man, and it is the equivalent of six being repeated three times, 666, right. which we represent with our numeral 666. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering, people have said, oh, it's just, a, it's just a figurative number. It's not meant to be calculated out to a name. It's just one less than seven, one less than seven, one less than seven, mm -hmm. um, indicating it is not the number of God. It is the number of man. Mm -hmm. um, but with the number, I just don't know how that works in Greek as far as, is it more saying six three times or is it? Oh, no, no. It, the text actually has, it has the word for 600, hexakasioi, and then it has the word for 60, hexakanta, and then it has the word for uh, hegs uh, or six, which is hegs. Interestingly, in many of the manuscripts, instead of spelling out those numbers, they would actually use the letters. They would use the letter that stands for 600 and then the letter that stands for 60 and then the letter that stands for six. So it'd be PZ stigma, if I'm thinking right. So, As to identification, a popular explanation is that it's Nero Caesar, because if you take Nero, is, is it Nero Kaiser? Uh, or Nero Caesar, mm -hmm. yeah, Kaiser, the German version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Holy Ro the, the Third Reich. The Holy yeah, Ro there we go. There we go. Uh, if you take Nero uh, Caesar uh, and convert it to Hebrew, and then use the Hebrew numbers because they have a similar numbering system, right. not separate. Mm -hmm. It's sixty-six. Interestingly, Irenaeus, as early as he was didn't even mention that one as a possibility. The, the jump to Hebrew seems uh, unnecessary. He mentioned three possibilities. People have done all sorts of things. Uh, Ray Summers, uh, Jeff, I know you'd be familiar with that book. Yep. There, there it is. Uh, yep. He talks about, I think during, might have been during World War II, one of his students pointed out, I think if you had A equal 101, B equal 102, C equal 103, I believe that's where it started. Guess what H-I-T-L-E-R uh, comes out to? 666. 
somebody also noticed that Ronald Reagan's middle name <laughs> had six letters. Ronald six, middle name six, Reagan six. Uh, I would like to suggest that maybe we ought to be watching for nine ninety nine, and it's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, it's something. There's been an unclarity about who it might be if it is a specific person. But the other possibility is that it's not a specific person. And that gets into a little bit has to do with the, the idea of definite and indefinite articles. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to comment on this. In English, we have the definite article. Right. The, hand me the book. Did you see the car? Yeah. Which means something different than uh, hand me a book or did you see a car? Uh, Greek didn't have the indefinite article. There was just the, you might have the Mary, the boat, the house, but there was no a Mary, a boat, a house. We put A's in our translations, I guess, so we don't sound like Tarzan, but <laughs> occasionally, occasionally the A gives a definite impression. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you translate it, it is the number of a man sounds different than the number, number of man. So Jeff, Comments and thoughts on that? Well, you just explained it. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of it. But but just to, to summarize, there is no word for a in Greek. Now, strictly speaking, there is an indefinite pronoun that you could, uh, as a workaround, you could use for a. But uh, but generally speaking, we think of Greek as not having an indefinite pronoun. So there's, I'm sorry, indefinite article. Did I say pronoun? There is a indefinite pronoun that you could use as a workaround, but I'm getting into the weeds here. So let me just clarify. We have the, the word the in, uh, an equivalent to the word the in Greek, but we don't have an equivalent to the word a in Greek. And, and so that creates a situation like in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, where Paul says, uh, godliness is profitable for, I'm sorry, bodily exercise is profitable for little, or you could translate it sticking an A in there, because since there's no A in Greek, we have to, as translators, we have to decide, am I going to put an A in there or not in English? But it can mean one thing if I do and one thing if I don't. So if I say bodily exercise is profitable for little, what impression do you get that I'm saying about bodily exercise? Not that important. But if I say bodily exercise is profitable for a little, now what impression do you get? There is some. You, there is some, and you ought to have some bodily exercise. And so translators uh, go back and forth in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Most of them will say bodily exercise is profitable for a little. For what it's worth, I think, to misunderstand the context. I think in context, Paul is talking about the ascetic practices of the Gnostics there, and he's saying it's, it's profitable for little. It's just really not profitable. Uh, but you can see how it makes a difference. And so here in Romans chapter or in Revelation chapter 16, verse 18, it's the number of a man. Well, that, that's a particular man. Makes me think it's got to be one single guy. Yeah, yeah. I, it, indefinite as to who it is, but it's some particular man. Or it's the number of man. That would just be man in the abstract. Just man, the idea of man. And this number represents the idea of humanity, you would think, as opposed to deity. And when a Caesar is demanding to be worshipped as a god, or the emperor worship cult is, or the governors are requiring people to worship him as god, it may simply be a reminder, you know what? He is not a seven. He's a six. <laughs> yeah. 
He's a six, 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 but he's never going to be a seven. That, that really, I think, makes sense in the context. It's it's a it's the it's the uh, reminder that this is just a man, however great he may seem on the face of the earth, and however fiercely he may be opposing God's people. He's just a man. Stephen, you have something. And, you know, this is one of those things where we, we can't really nail it down what exactly this means. But there are so many people who are fixated on figuring out what this means and avoiding it at all costs. But let me tell you, if, if we spend as much time and energy trying to avoid the sins that are obviously identified yeah. in Scripture and yeah. in being holy and yeah. staying away from what the beast is trying to get us to do. <laughs> and that's and it's yeah. the, it's the same beast, but what Satan's trying to get us to do. If we would put our effort and our energy into the clear things in Scripture, we'd be much better off than spending all our time worrying about, oh, did I accidentally put, get a 666 total on my receipt and I need to buy something else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anybody, anybody that tries to get us to worship him, whether his name equals a six 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 or not, don't do it. It's uh, it, it, the the text is focus is, is people that would be pressured into worshiping man instead of God. Now, guys, but, but Stephen, you got to you got to you, you can't sell books if you don't take up the six 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 so mysteriously. Oh, <laughs> just a yes, there's a lot of money to be made. Just a programming reminder for for those of you who watch the webcast. We do a little pre webcast meeting at nine o'clock in the morning on, on the day of this webcast. And we talk about what we're going to talk about <laughs> telling our secrets. And we said we would spend a short amount of time on this subject, just a little amount of time. And then we would move on to some other things. I, I just want to mention it is now two 30. We've spent two thirds of the <laughs> Let us move on. Good reminder. Very good. Very good. good reminder. It's my fault as much as anybody's because it's kind of fun to talk about. But yeah, it is. It's good, and there is so much misunderstanding on it. So okay, we 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 uh, we did enough. Uh, the next item then I'll bring up is um, it, it, we've we've been throwing out an open question each week, uh, inviting uh, an atheist either in the pod from the podcast or the show live or anywhere to to give us some comments back on where does morality come from? What's the origin of morality? Um, and for some reason, we've not had any atheists step up and tell us where morality comes from. <laughs> and, we, and we don't mean this in a disrespectful, argumentative approach either. I mean, we're sincere. We want to hear that firsthand. We don't want to make up straw arguments. And we also realize that there's probably not a high percentage of atheists uh, tuning into the webcast. That's, that's a true if term. I would like, if, if there's somebody out there that is atheist or agnostic, or if you've been talking to somebody that's an atheist and, and they've answered this question to you, we'd be interested in hearing from you. And hopefully by the time we get to the end of our webcast, there are fewer atheists watching than at the beginning, not because people have tuned out, but because they've changed their mind. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. All right. So with that said, rather than just keep asking the question, which it's an open question, we'll go on for, for forever long. We want to leave it there. Let's from the, let's look at it and talk about it yet from the, Christian perspective, where morality comes from. Um, I have a quote that I want to quote from a, a well-known atheist, but I'm not sure I want to go there yet and start with, unless you guys want to bring something and start the conversation off. Um, I'll, I'll start it off with this, because it happened again just the other day. Uh, sometimes in a big city, I'll do street work, uh, 
and uh, I've got some questions that I ask people on the street, four questions, and hopefully get them to thinking by the end of it. And when somebody says they're an agnostic, here's the question, and I'll pull it up here, uh, that I ask them. Uh, can you see my screen, by the way? Did I share? Uh, I I'm not, I can't see it right now. All right, let me hit share screen here. And I want you to look at this because I'm going to give you two or three examples of how people have answered this. If they identify at the beginning up here as an agnostic, column number two, then we go to another question. And then their question three is this one right here. If you can see where my cursor is moving around. What is your con concept of R&W? Yeah, right what is your wrong. concept of right and wrong? More, A, moral truth is relative and cultural, not absolute. We make our own truth. Or B, right and wrong exist above and beyond our culture. Now, ask this question to a fellow in Harrisburg the other day, and he said, we make our own truth. Okay. So then I go to question four. If uh, a given culture approves of child pornography, pedophilia, and exterminating the elderly, is their behavior right, because truth is merely relative and cultural, and they've made their own truth, or is it wrong, because right and wrong exists as truth above and beyond our culture? And he said, in that case, it would be wrong. Same question, uh, a fellow over at Drexel University had a button on and said, I'm a scientist. He said, it's all relative and cultural. We make our own truth. But then when we got to question number four, he said, well, that would be wrong. And last example, asked this to a lady, and she said, oh, yeah, it's all relative and cultural. We make our own truth. And when I asked her question number four, she looked puzzled, and she said, that would be wrong, but I don't know why. Hmm. And I thought that might be a good way to introduce are thinking on this. Yeah. Now that's very telling when you, you talk to people and you try to get them to think about why is it wrong? Because I think pretty much anybody you talk to, if you talk to them long enough about different things, everyone will draw a line somewhere where they say, well, th that's just wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. there's this sense of, uh, no, that, that can't be right. We should, everyone should realize that that, is wrong. Scary when, thing is that outside of a university, I had young students saying it's all culture and relative. And when I got to question number four, then they said, yep, then that's all right for them. Well, let me inter, in, uh, introduce then the quote from a famous uh, scientist and, and, and atheist, and, and I'll give you the reference where this comes from, because this will then lead right into where Stephen was going. This is from Richard Dawkins, and he wrote a book in 1996 called River Out of Eden. Uh, and it's no secret, he admits it, he's an atheist. His, his, his quote is, and he's also an evolutionist. In a universe of blind physic, physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance 
to its music. End quote. Wow. Yeah, it kind of leaves, leaves me speechless, too. By the way, if we are nothing but DNA, and DNA selects for survival, where would the principle of sacrifice come from? From DNA. <laughs> if you sacrifice, you don't survive and don't pass on your DNA. Yeah, right. So, but, but DNA, so there's a contradiction within the, in the premise. Now back to a statement though, if we do dance to its music, that fourth person then, Scott, that you talked about, which she says, I don't know why, but yeah, that'd be wrong, but I don't know why. If it's the DNA dance, the music, and we just dance to it, then how could someone condemn a murderer? Yeah. Like one guy answered the questions. He said, oh, it's all relative. We make up our own. And I asked about that. And he said, well, we could go over there and we could force him to stop. I said, well, what? Might makes right. right and wrong what gives us the right to go you know why interfere with their thing and well, on the other hand why not i mean yeah yeah that's right <laughs> no matter what i do who can who can say that it's wrong they might not like it they may have enough power to stop me from doing it because they don't like it but how can they say there is some kind of universal law that i have violated if we are here by accident and yet they say there is no universal law. And yet then you get to not, uh, Hitler killing all the Jews or various, various things that have happened in history. We say, is that all right? And there's still many people who will say, well, no, that would be wrong, even though they think there's no God, no universal law. Okay, then I heard this. I heard, well, if it's, against, if it's going against uh, society and being harmful to the society in general and in in, in overall, and we have to make the decision that it's wrong. Why? Exactly. Exactly. Suppose, suppose I think that, you know, there's too many people on this earth, and somebody says, well, society says that you can't wipe them out. And I say, hey, uh, I just want there just to be two people, just me and my, my wife or something. We're going to wipe everybody out, and we, and we have the power to do it. What would be wrong with that? Yeah, well, you, you're going to the extreme. Right. There, are, there are people that do want to do that. Stephen, you've got a point. I'm going to stick this in real quickly. Uh, Lucian Salmer was a humanist. He wrote a, a book called The Humanist Evangel. And in that book, he argued that uh, abortion is all right. Killing anybody is all right. Uh, if you have the power to do it, there's nothing absolutely wrong with it. Mike makes right. He argued that's the only principle you can follow. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, I'll just say in this discussion, uh, Stephen Kuffel made another comment. He says, I've heard someone say, I can't answer that for their culture. But in my value judgments, it would be wrong. So then in Hitler's culture, was the Holocaust all right? Because that was consistent with his culture. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that comment, uh, because Dawkins himself, he recognizes, actually he rejects Darwinian survival of the fifth, fittest ethics. He accepts the Darwinian theory, but he rejects the ethics. And he says... Uh, he said he made a quote to. Uh, he said this to Doctor uh, Doctor told a radio host Michael Medlin on one of his shows. I've always said that I am a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to the way we should organize our lives and our morality. In other words, he wants to come up with his code of ethics, of his code of morality. 
Let's look at Darwinian ethics and stuff here. This is Darwin's cousin. Uh, a lot of people don't know him, but his name is Francis Galton. Okay? Uh, and he's the one that coined the word eugenics. Somebody tell us what eugenics is. Uh, basically, it's the idea of good birth. It's the idea of, of making sure that the, the people who are born and live are um, healthy, smart, beautiful, and we're going to filter out uh, of society those that aren't. Yeah. In breeding. Right. It's, it's breeding humans for, for the desirable traits and, and uh, excluding the undesirable traits by selective breeding. And that word was, was coined by uh, Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin. He read Darwin's book, and you got survival of the fittest. And there's a struggle to survive, and the best survive, and their genes go on, and that helps advance us. And so he said, why are we having hospitals and give medical care and stuff for infirm people that society would be better off without their seed propagating? So this says here, the word itself from the Greek for well-born was invented by Francis Galton's cousin. He favored fertility for fine minds, sterility for the stupid. Nobody denies that his ideas led directly to the horrors of the Nazi era. Now, this is not from a creationist website. This is from Steve Jones, an evolutionist, a professor of genetics at University College of London. And he should kind of know what he's talking about. He is president of the Galton Institute, which used to be known as the Eugenics Society. And he's, he's saying that, that, uh, that his ideas did lead directly to the horrors of the Nazi era. I'll throw up just a couple of other things here. Uh, this is 1936. Germany was saying, we don't stand alone in, in their ideas. And look who they said stood, stood with them. This is the number of sterilizations back uh, then, uh, well, I'm getting off track here, but the point is uh, there's been a lot of effect from Darwinism and Hitler taking it to its logical conclusion did slow down some of that. Effect. We've got a question that I want to get to before we run out of time here. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about atheists and those who say we're here by accident. And logically, they can't have absolute truth. Logically, they can't say there's some absolute morality so that this is right or this is absolutely wrong. On the other hand, there are people who do believe that there's absolute right, and it's from God, it's in the Bible, but they're inconsistent. And Irene kind of highlights this. She says, what can be said to people who claim to be Christians who, quote, pick and choose what to believe? They tolerate worldly views and give generalized comfort to all. Do they make God in their own image? How can we emphasize the full authority of all Scripture? And it's a good question because Excellent. what that highlights is the problem of people saying the Bible is the Word of God, well, except not this part, because that's really not consistent with what I believe. In reality, what they're doing is making themselves their own God. Their own personal morality is what they believe is the morality, and as long as the Bible agrees with themselves, then they say, okay, that must be from God. That's right. Would that be somebody who normally accuses us of being self-righteous themselves being self-righteous? Yeah, <laughs> they are being self-righteous because their whole, their concept of righteousness really doesn't come from the Bible, even though they turn to the Bible to say, look, here's what the Bible says, because they don't accept the Bible in other points. Clearly, 
what determines what is righteous for them is their own view. So that's kind of the definition of self-righteousness. Good question. Yeah. We've had several uh, comments here from Cassandra who says um, it's called man-made religion, which really is what it boils yeah. down to. Yep. Um, she talks about genetic manipulation in the lab is happening today. And she also uh, comments, uh, many people believe what the GA Guidestones declare. I'm not familiar with those. Are any of you familiar with that? Georgia? I don't know. It just says. <laughs> I don't know GA what GA is. Gospel yeah. advocate? I'm not sure what GA is. I'm, I'm not Green sure. antelopes? Cassandra says yes. She says yes. GA Guidestones. Ge- Georgia, Georgia, Georgia Guidestones? I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with Georgia or GA. Well, I, wish, I wish the show would go to an hour today because we, this is opening up some good questions. Sandra, and send us a note what GA Guidestones is. Maybe we can talk about it next week. Yeah, Cassandra, please send us that. Well, um, we are about out of time for this week. We are get yeah. We got a few seconds left. Um, I don't want to bring in any more comments because we'll just open up some more things. Go past the time. So let's maybe we do want to pick this up next week with some more information. If any of you in the audience have more comments, questions. Text them to us. In fact, let me just, while I'm closing out, let me just put up the um, information where you can contact us from. and um, Or you can go directly to the website, BibleQuest.tv. There's a form right there near the top. Type in anything you want, questions, comments. Hit submit, and uh, we'll bring it on the air and t- talk about it further. I want to thank everybody in the audience. We've got a lot of good comments today. Thank you, guys, panelists, and thank you, Noah, for helping us out. Guys? Thank you very much. Hopefully we can tune back in next week. Enjoyed being with you guys. Thanks for the questions from our viewers. Thank you, everybody.